0: Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Here I Am, we explore all the places where we find this phrase, Here I Am, from God in the scriptures. We look at Old Testament and New Testament versions of this to describe when God is present in our lives. I hope you enjoy. The moment of darkness. When it was noon... Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima Sabakani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, Listen, he is calling for Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick, And gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was God's son. There were also women looking on from a distance, among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger of Joseph and Salome. These used to follow him and provided for him when he was in Galilee. And there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. I'm always amazed by science, and the world that it uncovers right beneath our eyes. A lot of us look at the world around us, and what we see right in front of us, we think is very simple and mundane, but nothing could be further from the truth. What science teaches us is that wherever you lay your eyes, there is such enormous complexity staring you back in the face that our brains can barely comprehend it. Let's take this pulpit right here as an example. Now, this pulpit is made of wood. And when I touch it, my brain tells me that it's quite solid. In fact, if I tried to break it, I couldn't do it because it would shatter my fist. But what's interesting is that what science tells us about this pulpit is actually quite different from what our human experience tells us. If you were to zoom in, to the atomic level of that pulpit. You would no longer see a single object, but rather trillions upon trillions of atoms. Now when you start to look at an atom, and you break it apart into its most basic elements, you realize that an atom is ninety-nine point nine you're getting the point, 999% empty space. The only part of the atom that has any mass is the core and the electrons. Now to give you an idea of how little mass this actually represents, if you took the atoms that comprise every single human being on the planet, that's 7 billion people, and you removed all of that empty space, you could fit all the mass of those atoms in a teaspoon. So this pulpit that can break my fist is essentially entirely empty space. So when you look at it, you might see a piece of wood that's been carved and has painting on it. But when science looks at it, it sees something that is infinitely more complex. And that is what Good Friday is really all about. It's a story that on the surface, is very, very simple. But when you start to dig down, you realize that there's a whole world of complexity right beneath the surface. So, the story is actually very, very simple. We're talking about a man named Jesus of Nazareth, and he was crucified by the Roman government for treason. The reason why he was crucified is actually quite simple as well. Jesus and his band of disciples, they walked into the temple in Jerusalem, and they basically disrupted the business transactions that were going on in there. Now, I need to tell you a little bit about the temple in Jerusalem for you to understand anything about what's happening today. So, the temple in Jerusalem, for those of you who don't know much about it, was a place where Jews from all over the Mediterranean would come to worship and sacrifice to God. And many of these people, they didn't just live in Jerusalem. Most Jews, they lived in different parts of the Mediterranean. And so when they would come to offer sacrifices, they obviously weren't bringing a sacrifice with them. So they had to purchase it when they got to the temple. And so what happened was, as a result of this need, this whole industry cropped up in the temple for the purchasing and selling of sacrifices. And if you see there in the temple courtyard, that is where it would take place. It would take place right on the inside before you go in. So let's assume you're one of these people. You're coming from some other part of the world. You get to the temple. You walk in. And of course, the problem is, you have money from a different part of the world. So what's the first thing you need to do? You've got to exchange it, right? So, they had that all ready for you. There's money exchanges right over here. You go over. You give them your money. Now, of course, they took a little hefty fee for transferring the currency into the proper thing that you needed. And then you go over to the sellers of the sacrifices. Now you can choose anything from a small dove all the way up to a full-size bull. But of course, the sellers of the sacrifices, they're also trying to get top dollar. Now if you're wealthy, one of the 1%, and it truly was 1% at that time of people who had wealth, then it was very easy for you to get the sacrifice that you needed. But if you were poor, which would have been most of you in this sanctuary at that time, then you were the one who bore the brunt of those high prices. And why I'm telling you this is because this is the primary factor that made Jesus angry at the time that he lived. He believed that you should not have to be wealthy in order to worship God. So he goes in to the temple, into the courtyard, and he starts overturning the tables, of the money changers. He starts overturning the tables of the people who sell the sacrifices. And you know that this caught the attention of the Jewish aristocracy. And the Jewish aristocracy, that was mostly comprised of the priests who worked in that temple. They were the wealthiest people in Jerusalem. Now, what you also have to understand is that all those business transactions that were taking place, they got a cut of the profits. So, if you're the Jewish aristocracy, are you just going to let that slide that Jesus walks into your house and turns over your tables that give you profits? No, you're not. And so they call up their friends in the Roman government and they say, hey, we got this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, he's a problem. Would you do something for us? And they were more than happy to help. In the scripture that Judy read to us, It portrays Pilate as being this man who is very, very sympathetic to Jesus' cause. But what you have to realize is that historically we know that's not true. Pilate was a brutal man. He was truly heartless. He did not care about the Jews. And you can be sure that he was more than happy to sign Jesus' death warrant. So on the surface, this story is really about a man who made the wrong people angry. But if we dig down a little bit deeper, we're going to find that this story is about something far more complex. And to get into that complexity, I would like to look at a scripture today from Isaiah. So the scripture from Isaiah, this is going to help us understand, so I'm going to read it to you. I was ready to be sought out by those who did not ask, to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation. That did not call on my name. I held out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face, continually sacrificing in gardens and offering incense on bricks. Now, you have to realize that this scripture, it was written five hundred years before Jesus ever walked the earth. And so I need to give you a little bit of context about what's going on right here so you understand why this scripture is important for us today. So, 500 years before Jesus was ever walking on the earth, there were no Jews in Jerusalem. They had all been shipped off to a place called Babylon. This big country came in, and they took everybody, and they sent them away. There weren't any Jews there. But then after a little while, this place, Babylon, it gets taken over by an even bigger nation called Persia. And Persia was run by this king. His name was Cyrus. And Cyrus said, hey guys, guess what? You can go home. Go back to your homeland. And so they do. They start heading back. And so this scripture, it is there to chastise those Jews who when they were sent to Babylon, turned their backs on God. It is supposed to make them realize that They shouldn't have integrated with Babylonian culture. They shouldn't have started worshiping those Babylonian gods. And the purpose of this is for them to realize that God is waiting there with outstretched arms saying, Here I am for you. So come back to your God. We fast forward 500 years. Now we're with Jesus, right? Now, everything is working the way it's supposed to. Jesus, the Jews, they're all worshiping God in the temple, right? But here's the problem. What's going on? There's so much money being pumped through the temple that worshiping God has become a lot more like a business transaction than a spiritual experience. And so Jesus, he reads these words, and he believes that what's written there still applies, that God is still waiting with outstretched arms, that God is saying, here I am, because in Jesus' mind, the act of worshiping God has become corrupted. So, Jesus, he wants to see this change, and he's dedicated the last three years of his life to it. What he wants is for you and for everyone else to realize that God is there, God is waiting, and God wants you to come back. But in order to do that, he believes he needs to rid the temple and all of the things that come with it of the greed that had come to overpower it. So when he went in to the temple that day, and he starts overturning the money changers, and he starts overturning the sellers of the sacrifices, he knew exactly what he was doing. have no doubts about that. He knew what was going to happen to him. He knew that they were going to come after him. Now, most people who did what he did, they would run. They would be gone. Because they would not want to face what was about to happen to him. But according to what we read in the Scriptures, he sticks around. He actually doesn't go anywhere. He wants to be found. If the Gospels are to be believed, he actually stays in Jerusalem and goes and teaches in the temple. So what that tells us is, he wanted to be caught, he wanted to be arrested, and he wanted the death sentence that would surely be handed down to him. And the question we have to answer tonight is why. Why did he want to suffer so badly? I think this is a very interesting question. Because most people who I ask, when given the choice between suffering and not suffering, tend to choose not suffering. But there are some people who are open to suffering. And I have found that in my experience, these people tend to be the exception, not the rule. And they also tend to be very extraordinary people. I'd like to tell you about one such person tonight, other than Jesus, who I think fits that. Her name is Kayla Mueller. You've probably heard me talk about her here and again in the church. She is connected to our church. And she was an aid worker over in Syria. She was working for the NGO Support to Life. And she had gone over to help all the Syrian refugees who were fleeing due to the civil war. And so she was on the Turkish border, and she had, eventually, she was captured by ISIS. She's one of four Americans who has been killed by ISIS over in the Middle East. Now, I want you to think about what Kayla has done. She intentionally goes to a war torn area of the world because she wants to serve people. She intentionally goes into a place where she knows. She's going to suffer because she wants to help those who are in need. There's this beautiful quote that Kayla has, and it's now immortalized. She says, I find God in the suffering eyes reflected in mine. If this is how you, God, are revealed to me, then this is how I will forever seek you. Kayla understood that through suffering... That is how you find God. Now I want you to think about that for a second. I think that's hard for us to understand. Suffering helps us to find God. So Jesus' death, Kayla's death, what that shows us is that when we enter into suffering, we are going to find God's presence in the world. When Jesus died on the cross, when He suffered, His goal was to open the world so that everybody might know that God is calling out to them saying, Here I am. And you know what's crazy about that? Is that it worked. He actually did it. Because, you know, for me, when I look at suffering, I'm willing to suffer on my own, but I don't see my suffering as necessarily helping anyone else. But the truth is, It can, and it does. When you suffer openly with the intention of serving your fellow human beings, and I want you to understand this, there's a difference between suffering just for the sake of suffering and suffering with the intention of helping others. You absorb the darkness in the world, and you allow others to see the light. I want to say that again so that everybody in here understands that. When you suffer with the intention of serving other people, you absorb the darkness in the world so that others might see the light. This is a principle that is found everywhere in life, but particularly in nature. Some of you might be familiar with black holes. Black holes are a region of space where the gravitational pull is so strong that nothing, not even light, can escape. Most black holes are formed from stars that are dying, that collapse in on itself. And the matter at the center of these black holes is so dense and so compact that some scientists believe that it can actually rip a hole in the fabric of space in time. Indeed, some scientists believe that the other end of a black hole is what is known as a white hole that leads to an entirely different universe. So, as a black hole, as we will see from the History Channel footage I stole, (laughs) it sucks in all the matter, and what happens is it takes that, pushes it through to the other side of the white hole, and it basically becomes the matter. It's the foundation of matter in this new universe. So I want you to think about it. 13 billion years ago, Our universe came into existence. And according to this theory, there was a black hole in another universe that broke through into ours, and all of the matter getting sucked in, it became the Big Bang in our universe. How amazing is that idea? Now, if you didn't follow exactly what I was saying here, let me break it down for you a little bit. In order for life to thrive in our universe... Something else needs to die. So, when that star collapses in on itself, what happens? It creates the possibility for an entirely new universe to exist. And the more one is willing to suffer, the more one is willing to engage in that act of death, the more you are going to bring life to others. Kayla Mueller, she was willing to suffer by going to serve those people over in Syria. She wanted to help them have food, help them have shelter, make sure that they had hope for a life that they had to leave behind. She suffered so they wouldn't have to suffer. She suffered so that they could have the opportunity to have life. She became God's hands in the world for those people. She brought light to their world of darkness. Likewise, Jesus, when he suffered, he wanted to allow people to have life abundant. He wanted people to know that God was speaking to them, saying, God is still here for you, saying, here I am. And like a black hole whose gravitational pull is so strong that nothing can escape, the example of Jesus' sacrifice has caused millions of people throughout history to cast their sins and their sorrows upon Him. His example of suffering and sacrifice, it has opened our eyes to the light of God's love, a love that tells us that we do not have to be the person who we were in the past, that we can be somebody different in the future. His death shows us that What God wants for us is for us to say, here I am, and I want to be with you. That is the most beautiful aspect, I think, of what this night is about. So I want you to remember, as you leave here this evening, as you go out into the world and you're reflecting on why do we gather together on this dark evening, I hope you remember that on the surface, this is a man who made the wrong people angry. But when you dig a little bit deeper, you realize that His death was no accident. It has a meaning and a purpose that has inspired millions of people for the last 2,000 years and shown us that God is there with outstretched arms saying, here I am. May you hear God's voice in your life. And may you be like Kayla, following in Jesus' footsteps, knowing that through suffering and serving one another, that you can bring God's light into the world. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.